You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Uh, so we're, we're getting out of the, uh, the Cornelius Peter story. We're, we're kind of moving on from that now at this point in Acts chapter 11. But we're reminded of that persecution that took place back in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen began to preach this incredible gospel message to the members of the Sanhedrin. Remember, he was preaching Jesus as Christ and their rejection of him as that. And the Jews got so sick and tired of hearing this message that they stopped up their ears and began screaming and ran at Stephen with one accord, grabbed him, threw him out of the city and began to stone him, eventually murdering him there outside uh, the city gate. At that point, persecution just really began to escalate and the people were really scattered out of Jerusalem as Jesus was trying to get them to go, not just in Judea, but Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. In God's sovereignty, he was able to use persecution to get them out of Jerusalem and their little comfort zone that they were in with all of you and get them out to start sharing the gospel. And so we see at this point, the persecution had, had kicked the flame of the gospel all the way up to the area of um, Phoenicia, which was modern-day Lebanon, north of Israel, over to the island of Cyprus, which is about 100 miles off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea there, if you look at your Bible map in the back of your Bible, uh, and then also Antioch, a coastal town uh, there just north of Israel as well. So the gospel has basically branched out into a 300 mile radius, which is such an exciting thing to read about, isn't it? Because we know it didn't just stop at that 300 mile radius and it's, it's made it all the way over here to Peeville. You know, it's made it all the way down to Latin America, you know, South, South America, South Africa, you know, man, the, the gospel has just spread like a wildfire. And so it's exciting to read at this point, you know, just the baby church, you know, this little 300 mile radius of the gospel and just, and to know it's just a little guy, you know, and the Lord's just about to boom, you know, just cause an explosion of the gospel uh, throughout the world there. Now notice at the end of verse 19, these, these people that were going out, they were preaching the word, but who are they preaching to? They were preaching to no one but the Jews only. Apparently they hadn't got the message from Acts chapters 10 and 11 that God was trying to drive home so hard that the gospel wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for uh, Jews and Gentiles, as many that would call upon the name of the Lord uh, to be saved. The gospel's for, for them. It's the power of God unto salvation. And that's the message that we've been looking at in depth in chapters 10 and 11 that uh, you know, the, the Lord is able to save to the uttermost, to the guttermost. Uh, it's, it, his salvation goes beyond racial barriers, uh, political barriers, uh, stereotypical boundaries. I mean, his gospel goes just as, as far as there's land on this earth. And, uh, and so, you know, they, they were a little bit starting out small there with the gospel only going to the Jews. But it's an incredible thing to see the gospel reaching Antioch. Now, Antioch was a big city in its day. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, Rome being the largest, Alexandria, Egypt being the second largest, and then Antioch here, north of Israel, uh, was the third largest city. It had an island in the middle of the river, this, this large island that had a, what they call it, I could be saying it wrong, a, a hippodrome, which is basically a large horse ra uh, racing arena, a big coliseum for chariot races and horse races. And uh, just people would come from all over for these massive races. There were bridges that connected the island to the main city. And the main city of, of Antioch had an aqueduct that would carry hot water throughout the city. It would have bathhouses, uh, two different large theaters, uh, it had these massive temples to Artemis and, and uh, Herec uh, I know it's not Hercules, Heracles, <laughs> unless it is, and I just spelled it wrong, but then you, 
You guys, some big God, I guess. Uh, then there was this pantheon or this basilica dedicated to all of the heroes, basically, of the, the culture, of the country. As there was a large earthquake in 37 AD, um, uh, it just really devastated the town. And uh, the emperor Gaius helped rebuild the town. Uh, and then Antioch would later on host these massive Olympic sized events. So it was just this large, massive, wealthy, powerful city that was really a hub to the rest of the then known world, much like Rome was. Another thing about Antioch was that it was dedicated to the Greek goddess Daphne, who in the, the, uh, the, the story basically had been seduced by Apollos sexually. And so much of the worship to Daphne was this uh, sexual and moral worship, really just paganism at its root, that, uh, that just held the city of Antioch in darkness and in bondage. Okay, so that gives you a little look at Antioch, large city, everyone's going to that city, probably lots of gambling going on, lots of sexual immorality, really the Las Vegas of its day. You know, and man, if we think of a town that's like, ah, the gospel can't make it there, you know, it's like, probably would think a lot of times, Las Vegas, sorry, Aaron, I know you used to live there, but call a spade a spade, right, buddy? Um, anyways, no, of course the gospel can reach to Las Vegas, to the darkest, deepest pit in Las Vegas, and save those people that are trapped in sin. In fact, the, 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 the darker the city, uh, you know, the, the more grace can abound in it. And, and as Antioch was just this dark backdrop of a city, as you tell the story of what it was like, really it just makes the gem or the diamond of the gospel pop all the more as you tell about Jesus able to save the people that are trapped in sin. He, he came to seek and to save the lost. And so it's just awesome to see revival begin happening in Antioch. It's going to become, as we continue through the book of Acts, it's going to become uh, a missionary hub for the rest of the world. God doesn't use Jerusalem as the hub from this point on. He's going to use Antioch as this mission uh, base to send people all throughout the world. We'll see that more in Acts chapter 13. But these guys came, they, they began preaching, uh, but to the, to the Jews only. In verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, whom when they'd come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So these guys were from that island of Cyprus, had heard the gospel, been impacted by the gospel, and then began to move over, not hoarding the gospel for themselves, but they, they were missional-minded men who wanted to fulfill the Great Commission. So they headed off their island and, and went to Antioch to share the gospel. And it says they, they spoke with the Hellenists, which were Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced Jews. And, and what did they talk about? Who did they talk about to these Hellenists? Jesus, usually safe most of the time, just yelling that out at me. Um, they, they preached Jesus. That's, that's the center of preaching. That's the, the message that should be coming out of people's mouths. Not preaching politics or political candidates or simply morality, but preaching Jesus. The gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Uh, and, and so that's, that was their message. You see that in Philip as he went to Samaria. He was a guy that just dripped Jesus out of his mouth. He was just this fountain uh, of, of Jesus. And so uh, this guy, or these people, we don't even know their names. We're never told their names. Just a group of guys from Cyprus preaching Jesus. And recently, I uh, just heard a story from the Northwest Conference in Seattle uh, and this message by Tim Chaddock. And the whole thing is the centrality of Jesus in our preaching. And he says this, that, that preaching is not just fluctuation and volume and tone and, and passion as you're speaking. Um, but he says this, preaching is to, ad, to advise with urgency or earnestness to communicate something in such a way so that you bring it to bear on that person's heart. You're putting it on that person. Let's just pray right now. Lord Jesus, I pray that as your word goes forth and, and, and just a humble preacher here, that you would let your word rest on the people's heart, Lord. 
Some things are going to be more for certain people, other things more for others. But Lord, we pray your spirit that you'd preach to us, Lord, and you would impress on our hearts how you want to move and how you want to change us. So, so you know, it doesn't matter how loud or how soft you are. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit bringing the word to bear on people's hearts. And we can just be constantly praying that the Lord would be doing just that. So they, they preached the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. That speaks of the Lord's strength. That speaks of the Lord's power. It speaks of the Lord's salvation. And, and, if, and if A of verse 21, the hand of the Lord wasn't with them, then B wouldn't happen. But because the hand of the Lord was with them, then the second part of the verse, verse a great number of An, you know, Antiochians uh, got saved. A great number believed uh, and turned to the Lord as the Holy Spirit, you, you know, was using these guys and drawing men. Men were responding to the gospel. They would believe in the Lord and, and turn from their sin. And we'll get into that a little bit more, but I want to camp out on just this phrase. It's, it's a gem in this section for sure, that the hand of the Lord was upon them. The hand of the Lord was upon them. You might just underline that. Since I've been kind of studying this section for about two weeks now, and I've just, it's been a constant prayer of mine that, Lord, your hand was on the church in Antioch, and you were saving people. You were moving radically. Later on, we're going to see, you know, the gifts of the Spirit happening. Uh, Lord, let your hand be upon everything we do here, everything we do, our prayer meeting. Let your hand be upon the pulse, Lord. Let your hand be upon the women's ministry. Let your hand be upon the youth. Let your hand be upon the elders and the financial board and the, you know, the children's ministry and the men's ministry. We need the Lord's hand to be upon us so that the second part of the verse could happen, so that we could believe and turn to the Lord, be used by the Lord as the rest of the book of Acts shows, that we could be a hub for ministry to take place. And so, man, as I just camped out on that phrase that the hand of the Lord was upon them. I began to do a word study and, and I just was so blessed by seeing, seeing the, the hand of the Lord throughout scriptures. And so we're going to look, we're going to kind of do a survey through the Old Testament and a couple verses in the New Testament of the hand of the Lord. Now again, the hand of the Lord speaks of his power and it can, it can speak of his salvation, but it can also speak of his judgment upon the wicked. And as Romans chapter 11, verse 12 tells us, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And so as we look at the Lord, we see he is a good Lord. He's a Lord of blessing. He's a Lord of salvation. He is so strong and mighty in salvation, so strong in grace with, with his hand. But also as we look at the scripture, he is so strong in severity towards those that reject the gospel, towards those that are stiff necked to his word. And he will not be mocked, as Galatians tells us. If a man sows in unrighteousness, he's going to reap judgment. If a man sows in righteousness, he's going to reap in blessing. And so you can start by flipping to uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 3. And when Pharaoh was rejecting the plea from Moses that, that he would let Israel go out of bondage, out of captivity... Pharaoh continually rejecting that. It says, verse Exodus 9, 3, before the plague of pestilence came, it says, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. So the hand of the Lord is mighty, and in this case, it's mighty in severity towards a Pharaoh and his country that was rejecting the God of Israel and not being obedient to the God of Israel. So this very severe pestilence came from the hand of the Lord. And you might just underline these phrases, the hand of the Lord, as we go through the text. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, we see as the Israelites were uh, 
traveling and, and traveling throughout the promise, uh, throughout the wilderness, finally making their way to the promised land. Uh, remember, people rejected the idea to go in and conquer with the power of the Lord. And because they complained and because they whined and they doubted the Lord, they ended up, uh, all males from 20 years old and above weren't allowed to go into the promised land. And they had to wander around in the wilderness uh, for 20 years. And so Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 15 says, Indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them. Hand of the Lord was against all those males, 20 years old and older. They doubted. Their, their life was marked with the history of doubting the Lord and complaining against the Lord and whining against the Lord and against his leaders. And, and, and finally, the Lord said, okay, you don't want to go in the promised land. You can have the wilderness for 40 years. You're not going in. And so the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp till they were consumed. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people. And that kind of gives you the idea. All these men of war perished. Because they were stiff-necked against the Lord, constantly whining, constantly murmuring, constantly doubting and rejecting the strong hand of the Lord. The strong hand of the Lord came on them in a severe way. It was against them. Uh, Then we've got uh, Joshua chapter 4, verse 22. After the Lord had led Israel across the uh, Jordan River. Remember, he parted the Jordan River just like he parted the Red Sea. And the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry land. And then Joshua had them set up stones of remembrance on the other side of the Jordan, declaring the Lord's faithfulness. And in Joshua chapter 4, verse 22, just encourage you to take advantage of this time to be flipping through the word and reading along with us. Uh, it's, good, it's good, you know, to learn where things are in your Bibles. But Joshua chapter 4, verse 22 says, Uh, Then you shall let your children know, because of these stones of remembrance, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you'd crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we'd crossed over. And then, man, maybe underline this, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now we may not have those stones of remembrance to look at and be reminded of every day as we cross the, uh, the, uh, Ochico Creek or Crooked River, you know, but we've got the word here as a remembrance to us that the Lord was mighty to save Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, save them from starving, save them from thirst, wanted to give them the promised land and deliver them from all those giants in the land. Yeah, he's faithful. And we're to remember that. That, you know, he's the same God today in 2010 as he was back in Moses' day and Joshua's day. He's just as faithful of a God. He's not an old man God now that kind of has amnesia and kind of remembers some of those old stories. Remember back when, no, I can't even finish the story, you know. Uh, he's, he's the same. He never changes. Just as faithful. And his hand can be with you in a faithful way, just like it was with the Israelites. He was providing for them. He brought them into the land across the Jordan River on dry ground. He's able to do similar things for us today. We can remember that and we can rejoice in that, the strong hand of the Lord. And then in Joshua twenty-two thirty-one, we're just going to kind of s- summarize it, that the hand of the Lord, Lord would have been war against the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh when those tribes wouldn't cross the Jordan. They wanted to stay on the other side and make their home over there. And, uh, you know, a contention arose, and, and, you know, they almost went to war against those three tribes. But the three tribes just kind of explained that, that, you know, if they were in the wrong, then slaughter us now. That wasn't our heart. We just feel like this is the area that, that's for us. And, uh, and so, you know, Joshua just explains, man, the hand of the Lord was going to be against you in war. You guys, man, the hand of the Lord for war came off. You guys are blessed. Uh, then we have uh, in, um, let me have you flip there, Judges chapter 2, verse 15, that after Joshua died and uh, the, the people were warned to follow in the ways of the law of Moses, to follow the ways of Joshua, not to serve the same gods that the Canaanites served as they came in and conquered the land. 
They weren't even to look at the old shrines. They were to immediately tear down the shrines. They weren't to look at the shrines and wonder, I wonder what this shrine meant. Because the Lord knew, man, you'd get sucked into worshiping these other gods. If you see another god, crush it, crash it, get it rid of it, grind it to powder. But, you know, don't, don't even wonder how great it is. And, uh, and so as the people went in to spy out the land, they immediately started to worship these other gods, the Baals, the Ashtoreths, you know, these, these gods of sexual immorality, perversion, um, gods that would uh, require child sacrifice and burning your young ones. And the Lord said, you know, don't worship them, don't worship them. But they began to worship these other gods. And Judges 2.15 says, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So man, it just shows that when we're living lives of idolatry, we're putting people or things or hobbies or pursuits or you know, material things, things in our hearts, you know, relationships, whatever it is, if we're putting it above Jesus, man, we're walking in idolatry. It's a dangerous place to be. You know, the Lord wants to be our God. He's the only God. And so, you know, we just see that when Israel rejected that and began to worship other gods, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. Wherever they went, constantly distressed, you know, constantly just, you know, people like that, just constantly, nothing's going right, pulling their hair out. Why, why, why? It's like, because you're serving these idols. And even the people that seems like everything's going well for them, the Lord's not mocked. One day, the hand of the Lord is going to be upon them. And they're going to wish that they would have feared the Lord. They're, they're going to wish that they would have humbled themselves before the Lord and not served other idols. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 13, at the end of the verse, we read of Naomi, who was a widow. And she had two sons who had married two gals. One of them's name was Ruth. And when Ruth's husband died and the other son died, uh, it was three widows. And Naomi said, you know what? I don't have any more sons. Go out, find another husband. But Ruth wouldn't. Ruth wouldn't go. And Naomi just cried out and said, No, my daughters, it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, the thought of you going on uh, throughout the rest of your lives, you know, with, without a husband, that grieves me. Hand of the Lord is against me, Naomi thought. Would have been a, a harsh thing. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, just kind of flipping through, examining some of these times, times of severities, times of goodness and salvation as the hand of the Lord goes out. 1 Samuel 5, 6, we, we read of the hand of the Lord being heavy against the Philistines when they stole the Ark of the Covenant. You can read there in 1 Samuel 5, 6, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. So get this ark out of here. The God of Israel's hand is harsh towards us. And, you know, it's a humorous story if if you read about all that happened, you know, they, they put the ark in the same area as the, uh, their, their god Dagon, kind of a froggy type god. And, uh, and when they would turn their backs and leave the room, uh, Dagon would fall down uh, in front of the ark. And then they'd come in, what the? And they'd prop him back up and then they'd leave again and it would fall down in front of the ark of the Lord. Get him out of here. Get this ark out of here. Even our god can't stand up to him. The hand of the Lord is severe. And then just in two chapters, 1 Samuel seven thirteen. You read that the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. As long as Samuel was a prophet, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. They were, they were idolaters. They were pagans. They stiffened their neck against the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, there's a word of warning to Israel at Saul's coronation. And he says this, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reign over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. 
And so, you know, as we've, you know, recently this spring gone through the story of the kings, just the constant theme throughout those stories is if you'll obey the Lord, obey his statutes and yield to him in humility, there will be such blessing upon you, such blessing upon your house, such blessing upon your nation. But if you'll stiffen your necks and disobey and rebel against the Lord, against his statutes, there will be judgment upon you. And, uh, you know, they're just warned, you know, you want a king? Okay. You want Saul? You don't want the Lord to be your king? Let me just tell you, you better obey the Lord, you and your king. If you don't, the hand of the Lord will not remain with you. And um, it will be against you and against your fathers. The severity of the Lord. Then 2 Samuel 24.10, actually, I keep meaning to mark this. The Lord, during the worship in the first service, said, come back to this one later. So we're going to come to this one later in the study, the 2 Samuel section, story about David. But let's keep flipping to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46. 1 Kings 18, 46, right after Elijah uh, experiences victory in the Lord at Mount Carmel. You remember the story? Finally, you know, Elijah gets tired and sick and tired of these idol worshipers of Baal. And so he calls all the prophets of Baal up to Mount Carmel. And he says, this is it. If Baal is God, worship Baal. If Yahweh is God, worship Yahweh. But quit wavering between two gods. There's a line and I'm drawing it in the sand. You need to cross which side. Who are you going to worship? And we're going to have a contest right here. And he had the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel build their altar and call on their God. And all day they called on their God and they'd cut themselves and they'd dance and they'd scream and no fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. You know, Elijah mocked them and laughed and made comments about their God maybe going to the bathroom or something. Or maybe he's on a business trip and can't hear you. And that's probably why he's not lighting your, your altar on fire. And then he says, all right, all right, enough, enough. You know, and he, you know, digs a pit, a trench around his altar and he pours water over the sacrifice and all over the wood and fills the trench up with water. And he says, all right, Lord, do your stuff. And immediately fire came down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice and the dust around the altar and the wood of the altar. And, it, and the fire lapped up the water that was around the altar. And they immediately took the priests of Baal down to the, uh, the brook uh, Kidron, Kish, Kish, sorry, Kishbon. It's been a long time. I need to go to Israel again and remember those names of those Greeks. That's how you remember things. You go there. And uh, they went down there and they executed these priests down at this brook. And then immediately it says uh, in 1 Kings 18, the hand, verse 46, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Ahab gets on his chariot, starts heading towards Jezreel, and uh, the hand of the Lord, after the, the rain came and all of that, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and Elijah, you know, strapped on his running shorts, basically. That's what girding up your loins. It's putting on, getting your robe into running short material, you know, and started running, and he ended up beating Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. So just so cool to see, you know, the hand of the Lord just giving, you know, physical strength, you know, physical strength to accomplish his purposes. You know, maybe you're in a place where you're just weary. You're just tired. You're just, man, you want to use me, Lord? I've got, you know, you want me to do what? Lord, I remember reading about Elijah and how your hand came upon him for speed. And Lord, would you give me the ability to do the task, you know, with speed or with might, so the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. Then you read in 2 Kings uh, chapter 3 that uh, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Elisha, he was Elijah's disciple. And uh, as the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom came up to war against the Moabites, kind of a, a, a unity that the Lord wasn't really for there, uh, Jehoshaphat, a good king, said, hey, before we go to war, let's, let's consult a prophet about what we should do. Well, there's only one God I know of, you know. And so they call, uh, another, the other king said, they called Elisha to come. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not even look at you nor see you. Now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musicians played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he says, thus says the Lord, 
make this valley full of ditches. And then he goes on to prophesy over the battle. But, you know, we just see that Elisha, when he was going to prophesy, he spent some time in worship. He had the music playing and the hand of the Lord came upon him to, to, to use him in ministry. And so, man, if you're at that place where you know that the Lord wants to use you or you want the Lord to use you, man, I'd ask you, bring out the musician. You know, turn on the worship music, spend some time before the presence of the Lord and cry out to him that the hand of the Lord would come upon you, that his strength, that his favor would rest on you. Then in Ezra chapter seven, verse six, you guys getting a little bit of your understanding of some Old Testament here. Ezra chapter seven, verse six, we read of the hand of the Lord upon Ezra, which resulted in favor from King Artaxerxes in rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem. So let's, let's flip there, Ezra 7, 6. It says, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord of God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Jump down to verse 9. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So here's this scribe Ezra who has a heart to, to spend time with the Lord and seek the Lord and, and preach the word and teach the word. And he has a heart to go back and do that in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And as he goes, similar story to Nehemiah, just gets total favor from the king. As King Artaxerxes sends him out with a letter that says, you know what? If you need sacrifices, if you need animals for the sacrifices, I can provide the animals. If you need grain for the sacrifices, I can provide that. If you need money for the priests, if you need anything, I'm your guy. I'll help you get, these things, get things rolling again in Jerusalem. Just total favor from King Artaxerxes. And after he received that letter in, in verse 27 of Ezra 7, it says, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord, my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So Ezra just, you know, has this task ahead of him and it's so easy to get discouraged you know, when you're just planning things, you start to get worried about things that are coming up. But man, when the hand of the Lord is upon you, it's such encouragement. Or maybe you're here today and you're just discouraged. You're, you know, just the, the life, the, the Christian life. And it just, it seems like I'm failing. It seems like I'm worried. I'm fearful. I'm defeated. Cry out today for the hand of the Lord to be upon you, that you can have such victory, such favor from the Lord. And, and man, Ezra, I was encouraged. I was encouraged when the hand of the Lord was upon me. In Job chapter 12, Job tells about how it's the hand of the Lord that sustains life. And you can look there, Job 12, 7. But now ask the beasts, they will each tell you, or excuse me, they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. The fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? You know, even the animals, even the fish in the sea, the birds of the air can tell you, who is he who sustains the life? And in his hand is every man's breath. You ever think about that? Just every breath you take, that it's a gift from the Lord. Could you imagine if the next time you went to breathe in, your breathing stopped? That moment of panic would set in, you know, or your heartbeat, how it's just such a blessing every time your heart beats. It's the Lord who allows your heart to beat and makes your heart beat. Who's the one that sustains life? It's the Lord. He's a mighty in his hand. He holds men's breath. In Acts chapter 17, we're going to read about Paul just preaching and saying, you know, it's in Jesus that we live and move and have our being. He's the sustainer of life. 
In Psalm chapter 32, verse 1, we read that the hand of the Lord was heavy. Sometimes we read about that. The hand of the Lord is heavy against uh, on David, King David, in conviction. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah, kind of continued on in that lie for a while. And he just writes, you know, Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Or, oh, how very happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And when I kept silent, you can just picture him in his sin and the hand of the Lord's upon him. You know, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality or my life was turned into the drought of summer. And he just thinks about that, man, when I was in rebellion against God, you know, and I'm, I'm just trying to live in my sin and oh, I'm going to do, I'm just going to do it, Lord. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to, I'm going to keep. I'm going to murder her husband, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know. And, and oh man, my, my life was like parched like the desert landscape, you know. My bones grew old. I was groaning all day long. You know, I think it's Psalm 6 that says, you know, that uh, David, you know, talks about, man, when I'm in sin, unconfessed sin, all night my bed swims and my couch is wet with tears, have you ever been there just living in sin? You can't sleep. The hand of the Lord is upon you. Holy Spirit's convicting you. You're tossing and turning and the conviction. Ah, you're, you're weeping because of your sin. And he goes on to say, I acknowledged my sin to you. Enough of this dry bones stuff. Enough of this desert wilderness stuff. You know, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. You know, oh man, I, I confessed it. I got rid of it. Awesome life. But man, when I was, when I was holding on to it and stiff-necked against God and I'm going to do it, I'm, man, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me during that time. Psalm 75, verse 7. We read that the hand of the Lord judges the wicked. Psalm 75, verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one, he exalts another, for in the hand of the Lord there's a cup. And the, the wine is red. It's fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. So the Lord is a just judge. He's holding a cup in his hand, and in that cup is his judgment, his Wrath, And for those that are wicked and rebel against him, they're going to drink his wrath. And you read about that in Revelation chapter 19, the second coming of Christ, when John sees Jesus on his way to come down to, to judge the Christ-rejecting world, he's riding a white horse. And one of the things about Jesus that he sees is that his robe, he's wearing a robe, and on the bottom of it, it's dipped in blood. And then as you read on, you know why it's dipped in blood. Because Jesus, in Revelation 19, it says that he treads out the winepress of the wrath of God. And just, I mean, it's, it's really a graphic picture as you think about those wine presses and the people stomping on their feet and crushing these grapes and making the wine come out. That Jesus is going to be doing that to mankind. Graphic picture of the severity of God's judgment against those that would reject him. Those that would continue on in wickedness. They're going to drink the wine from the cup of the hand of the Lord. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come out. You just see that picture of, of wine and the symbol of judgment there. Severity, right? Quit talking about the severity part. Let's get on to the blessing, you know. He's the one that sustains life. You know, we read here in Isaiah chapter 25 verse 9. Go ahead and flip there. We read that the hand of the Lord is a mountain of salvation. It will be said in that day, Isaiah 25, 9, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. And he will save us. This is the Lord. 
We've waited for him. You will be, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest. And Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for a refuse heap. He will spread out his hand in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground uh, down to the dust. So the hand of the Lord is a mountain of salvation, able to save us from our enemies. Later on uh, in Isaiah chapter 41, he says in verse 17, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fall for thirst. But then he goes on to say how the powerful hand of God over creation is able to make springs of water bust forth out of the desert ground and cause amazing trees that need lots of water to grow in the wilderness. Shows again just how, you know, just the hand of the Lord is mighty to save. Are you thirsty? Are you parched? Are you needy? Cry out to God. Let his mighty hand bring up for you in the desert an oasis. A place of refreshing. I'm not necessarily talking literally right now. Like maybe you're thirsty spiritually. Maybe you feel like your spiritual life is, is just a dried up pot shirt or something like that, you know, or a dried up sponge and you, it has no life. It's just, you can hit it against the counter and it makes a noise, you know, and clink, clink, clink. But man, the Lord can bring forth water and bring forth life in, into your spiritual life. Don't continue on in that dry, parched place. Let the hand of the Lord be mighty uh, to, to bring the water into your life. Isaiah 52, verse 17, again, just talks about the, that the Lord holds the cup of wrath and pours out the, the dregs of his wrath into the mouth of the wicked. And in this case, he's talking to Jerusalem, who finally Babylon took them out. The Lord used Babylon to pour out wrath. And... Uh, then moving on, just Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3. And you can just write in your notes, Ezekiel 1, 3, Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel 33, 22. You know, just so many, you know, the whole book, really. But in chapter 1, verse 3, we see the hand of the Lord was upon Ezekiel the prophet before he would prophesy. And so, and, and let's just look at the first instance, Ezekiel 1, 3. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar. And there the hand of the Lord was upon him. And there from verse three, there's 48 chapters of God speaking through Ezekiel and using him. Man, you want to be used by the Lord? Cry out for the hand of the Lord to come upon you. Useful, making you useful for ministry. You know, Ezekiel 3, you just read multiple cases where the hand of the Lord would come upon Ezekiel and give him incredible visions. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, Ezekiel is another man. Just the hand of the Lord was in a good way upon him. Then come into the New Testament, just a couple New Testament references. You guys remember uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and how he didn't believe that he'd actually have a son because he was old and his wife was barren. And when the angel told him, he didn't believe. So the angel said, okay, you don't believe? You're not going to talk until the baby's born. So he didn't talk until the baby was born, until finally baby's born. Zechariah speaks out, and Luke's 166 says that the hand of the Lord came upon Zechariah, and he began to prophesy uh, about the, the work of his son, John the Baptist. That he'd prepare the way for the Messiah. Then in Acts, back to Acts, reading in chapter 11, but you can flip in a couple chapters, Acts 13 11. Uh, we read about this man, uh, Elymas, I believe is how I say it. Let's see, let me get there. Towards the end of the chapter, I believe. I'm not finding it right off the top of my head. It's like Elymas or something, for some reason, brain, brain blank. But uh, just this wicked sorcerer that would speak uh, wicked lies and evil into the king's ear. And so Saul, and he begins to be called Paul here, rebukes this sorcerer and, and says, you know what? The hand of the Lord is upon you 
uh, and, and you will be blind. Acts 13, 11, uh, you'll be blind. And so this fog came upon him and he was blind. So we just see that the hand of the Lord judging the wicked. And yet we see the hand of the Lord so good for salvation. Here in Acts chapter 11, you know, back in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with those at Antioch was with the preachers at Antioch, and many believed and turned to the Lord. Revival happened because of the hand of the Lord. And Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1 says this about the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. You know, God is not a T-Rex, you know, these two little tiny arms, you know, like, oh, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it, you know. He is a, a mighty, powerful living God. And he is able to save Jews and Gentiles. He's able to save those involved in the most pagan cultures. And his love has reached into those cultures. His arm is not too short, or his hand is not too short, that it cannot save. In fact, we're going to see just one of the, probably I think one of the most powerful pictures of the hand of the Lord for salvation. Back, we'll go back now to that second Samuel chapter 24. If everyone could flip there. Second Samuel 24. Verse 10. And it says, and David's heart condemned him. And let me set this up real quick. The the Lord had told David to do a a census of the land. But when David did it, apparently his heart was a bit proud when he began numbering these great numbers and his mighty men of valor. And because his heart became prideful in this, he had sinned tremendously against the Lord in in that pride. And so it says there that David's heart condemned him after he numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord. You hear that? Let's fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Isn't that interesting? Even the judging hand of the Lord is more merciful than than men pursuing you. David knew that. And so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, or from north to south in Israel. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel, it was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I've sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar for the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king and his face to the ground. Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. So Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yoke of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So here in, the, in David's time, his last story about David's life, of, of the plague being upon the land, consuming the people, but David making a sacrifice on the, the threshing floor of Arana, uh, and it was then that the Lord heeded and withdrew the plague from the people. You know, an interesting thing about this is that 14 generations earlier, a man named Abraham was at this same mountain. It's interesting. Orana's threshing floor is up on a mountain, a mountain called Moriah. And 14 generations earlier, a man named Abraham was told by the Lord, hey, take now your son, your one and only son, whom you love, and take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him there to me. And so Abraham did, and he took his son, and he put the wood and stacked the wood on his son's back. And his son packed the wood up the mountain, saying, Dad, where's the lamb? And he said, you know what the Lord said? I'll provide myself the lamb. And they get up there to the top of the mountain, and just as Abraham's raising the knife and is about to, to kill Isaac, the Lord stops him. It makes that promise about, you know, I'll bring the lamb. I'll bring the lamb. I'll sacrifice here. Then 14 generations later, David goes up, the, the great, 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 great grandson. And he goes up and he makes a sacrifice at that same place. And, and that sacrifice stops the plague over Israel. Then David's son is going to make sacrifices in that same place. He's going to build Solomon's temple up there on the Mount of Moriah. And he's going to you know, have this place of sacrifice and offering to the Lord, all of it foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus being the perfect, pure, spotless lamb by whose blood all the sins of the world can be forgiven. And so uh, 28 generations after David, on the same mountain, David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is going to carry a sacrifice himself up that hill, Golgotha, Calvary, Moriah, and he's going to lay himself down, and he's going to be the sacrifice. He's going to make a sacrifice, like David said, it's going to cost something. It cost Jesus his whole life as he willingly laid down his hands to let the Roman spikes drive into them, willingly giving his back to the whip, willingly giving his brow to the crown. And it was there at Arana's threshing floor that the foreshadowing from Abraham, David, and Solomon was fulfilled as Jesus was the perfect lamb slain to take away the plague, not just for the days of David, but for all of those that would believe their sins could be forgiven them. And I just love that David says, let, let, the, let this plague be upon myself and my father's house. And interesting that his son Jesus took that plague took that plague for all mankind so that no longer would sin be imputed in their account, but rather Jesus' righteousness would be imputed in their account. And so the hand of the Lord was against David there in 2 Samuel 24. But you know what? The hand of the Lord ended up going upon his only son, and it's interesting to think about the hand of the Lord, good yet severe, good yet severe. And then finally we see in the Gospels the hand of the Lord actually taking that judgment upon himself. We see the hands of the Lord laying down on that Roman cross. We see the hands of the Lord's, Lord willingly taking those Roman spikes. Oh, God's too severe, blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know what? God is so good that he didn't let us just completely suffer in his wrath. But he saved us from the wrath to come. If anyone would believe on his name and the sacrifice that he made there on the cross, you won't perish. You won't taste of the wrath of the wine press. But you'll taste of eternal life if you'll believe. And so the hand of the Lord, good, severe, saving. It's a beautiful thing. And here we see bringing power to the church. Don't you long to walk in that church? Don't you long to walk in the hand of the Lord, walking in power, walking in revival, 
Let's start praying that the hand of the Lord would be upon Calvary Chapel of Crook County and that many would turn and believe. And you know what? As Acts chapter 11, verse 21 says, they believed and they turned from their sin. That's exactly what believing is. It's repenting of your sin. It's turning from your sin. As Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then news, verse 22, news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came, he'd seen the grace of God and he was glad and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. So believe it or not, Barnabas, whose name used to be Joseph, we read about in Acts chapter four, changed his name. They started nicknaming him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So here's this new little church birth in, you know, growth and growing in Antioch. Who should we send up there? Let's send the son of encouragement. I mean, this guy's always got a smile on his face. He's always lifting people up. He's always pointing people towards Jesus. Let's send him up there. So he goes up there, sees the revival that's happening, is glad, and the son of encouragement begins to do what? There's a reason it's his nickname. He begins to encourage them. You know, he begins to help them along. That, with, that, that they would purpose in their heart to continue with the Lord. And you know what? That's what the Christian life is. It's purposing in your heart to walk with Jesus. You know, it's got to be on purpose. You're never accidentally going to follow Jesus. You know, oh, I just, maybe I'll do it this way. It just kind of depends on however my day ends up working out. You know, it's like, no, you got a purpose in your heart. There's discipline in a Christian's life that, you know what? I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. I'm going to live for him. And this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to, I'm going to make a point in my life to follow hard after Jesus. And we read about Daniel in Daniel chapter one, verse eight, a 15 year old kid that's been taken captive by the Babylonians. And we read about uh, Daniel, you know, being, having all the king's delicacies put in front of him at this, you know, as he was made a eunuch. He could eat all of this stuff, most of the meat sacrificed to idols. And it just says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, or Daniel 1 verse 8, that uh, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies. And from that moment onward, there was incredible favor and blessing poured out upon Daniel's life. He had favor with all of the different kings that were going to rule over Babylon and the Medes and the Persians. He had this incredible favor. But I'll tell you this, it wasn't because Daniel white knuckled, I'm going to purpose in my heart not to defile myself. It wasn't in and of his own strength. But as it says there in Daniel, that the kings could see in him that there was an excellent spirit within him. You know, it was the strength of the Holy Spirit that helped Daniel purpose to live his life set apart for the Lord. And you know what? You guys, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have an excellent spirit in you as well. You can't white knuckle it on your own. I'm just really going to do it this time. You'll fail. I'll just let you know that. But if you rely on the Holy Spirit and you cry out to the Holy Spirit and the effort that you put into your walk with God, it's, it's in crying out to the power of the Holy Spirit, the hand of the Lord to carry you along. You know what? You'll see tremendous victory because the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside you. May the Lord make that a reality to us. But purpose in your heart, it's got to be on purpose, but it doesn't depend solely upon you. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to help you walk with Christ. And so he, he encouraged them that with purpose of heart, they would continue with the Lord or cleave to the Lord or cling to Jesus. Keep clinging to Jesus. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. You know, we might do a character study on uh, Barnabas later, just awesome characteristics in this guy. Good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. There is revival happening in Antioch. You guys still with me? Just reading the next two verses. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Revival's happening. Great many people are getting saved. And Barnabas feels like, you know what? I'm kind of doing this all by myself here. I, I need someone to help. And then the light bulb goes on over his head. Saul. It's been a good 11 years since Saul's been saved. He's been hanging out up in Tarsus for quite a while. And you know what? It's time. It's time. The Lord is ready to use this guy. 
And so he, he went to Tarsus to seek out Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled within the church and taught a great many people. For a whole year, there was assembling together of the saints taking place, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas teaching, and uh, many people believing. And, uh, and then it goes on to say, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And that's just kind of a fun closing point there of church history, that there in Antioch, at this time, the beginning of Saul's ministry there, we are first called Christians. It used to be called the way earlier in the book of Acts. You see that we were called the way. But now uh, the, the, uh, the worldly folks started calling us Christians as a derogatory term. And, and it means a follower of Christ or a little Christ. You're just a little Jesus, you know. And, you know, so often, you know, when, when you're getting picked on as a kid, and I should know something about this because I was picked on a lot as a kid, you know, the, the bullies would tell you that, uh, you know, they just make fun of some true aspect about you. You know, they, I was often called in Pullman um, mosquito eyes by a couple of guys, you know. I don't know why, but, you know, uh, hey, mosquito eyes, that's the dumbest, you know. But, you know, they pick on things. And so here they're, they're calling, hey, little, little Jesus, you're just a little Jesus. You're a Bible thumper. And to them, they're trying to discourage us. But to us, wow, someone's actually called me a Bible thumper. Like, I'm actually doing something with this thing, you know? I'm a little Jesus? Wow, I'm doing Ephesians chapter 5. I'm imitating Jesus, just like, like a little child imitates his dad. All right, I'm doing something right. You know, back in Acts chapter 4, actually Acts chapter 5, um, remember they, were, they started kind of digging at the disciples saying, you filled all Jerusalem with this man's doctrine. All right, you know, that's that's not an insult to me. That's an awesome thing. Keep calling me a Christian. Keep calling me a little Jesus. You know, it's been said that Alexander the Great had a man in his army that was named after him. But this, this soldier named Alexander wasn't very brave. In fact, in the middle of battle, he would run off uh, out of the battle and hide. And then when the battle was over, he'd come out and kind of act like he was a part of it. And word got to Alexander the Great. And so he met with this soldier and he said, is your name Alexander? Yes, it is. Are you named after me? Yes, I am. Well, then either change your name or change your ways. You know, either change your practices or change your name. Because you're not acting like Alexander. You're not acting like the guy that you're named after. And so I would ask you today, you know, are you named after Jesus? Do you call yourself a Christian? Why is that? Do you act like Jesus at all? Do you imitate Jesus at all? You know, or if people would start calling you a nickname, would it be something else? Man, I hope that the Lord begins to do such a work in our midst of power that people will have to start giving us nicknames. That they'll have to start saying, you know what, there's something about the work that's happening that I just have to, you know, those guys, they're the, they're the servants, you know, or they're the, they're the power people, you know, or they're the Jesus freaks or whatever. All right, you know, call us that. Is the Lord working that way in you? Man, I hope that he does in this church. Let's go ahead and, and put our things aside and we'll go ahead and have Stuart come up and now let's just respond to the word this morning as we've looked at just the different ways that the hand of the Lord can be upon us. He can be upon us in good ways. You know, maybe as we close in this song, you just want to worship and just declare the good hand of the Lord upon your life. Lord, I just thank you. You've just been blessing my home. You've been providing. I just thank you for your salvation that came through your hands, Lord, as you, you, they were nailed to the tree. And just worship the Lord for his good hand upon you. You know, maybe right now you examine, man, I don't even, I don't sense the hand, Lord's hand upon me. And you can just cry out during this last song that, that his hand would be upon you. That he would give you power. He would give you strength. Maybe there's those of you here today that, man, the hand of the Lord is actually against you. The hand of the Lord is against you. And, and you, are, you are, man, if you continue in this way, you're going to taste of his wrath. You're going to drink of his wrath. But I'm so thankful that he's brought you here today because he's giving you an opportunity that by faith you can believe in the saving work that Jesus did on the cross as he laid his hands down to be nailed, that he could be the substitute for you. 
Should have been you on that cross. But he willingly laid himself down, sacrificed himself for your sin. And today you can receive that work as the Holy Spirit is calling you today. Say, Lord, I just sense you calling me. I sense that your hand is, it's against me right now, but you're calling me. Lord, I want to be saved. I want to have my sins forgiven. I want your hand to just be upon me in a mighty way, in a way that would glorify your name. Just respond to Jesus today. Receive the great salvation that comes through faith in his name. And maybe just as we worship today and you just, you're just confessing these things to the Lord, you're worshiping for his hand upon your life or you're crying out for his hand upon your life. Let's cry out for his hand upon our church and our ministries. And let's cry out for his hand upon this town, just like it was upon Antioch. Maybe you're here today and you can just cry out as we sing that his hand of wrath will be taken away and his good hand will be brought to you, his hand of salvation. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.